It's you could play that for twenty years. It's still gonna make me laugh every time I hear it because it's like we're the A team. Well, you guys are the A team. I just gotta sit here and toss the ball around the corner. It's Skulls. Hi, how are you? James Fireman is here. Tamar Gopian is here. Courtesy Sam Firu, Tamarkin LLP, the most positively reviewed law firm in the country. The topic is disability law over the next hour. Do you want to contribute? A couple different ways I'll tell you right now. You can do that. Email is good. Help at disabilityrights.ca. Got a bunch of those mounting up already. We're going to get to our emails very shortly. You can also uh, call into the show. We got lots of open phone lines ready to go. Maybe you're not calling uh, for yourself. Maybe you have a bashful friend or a family member who has a question about dealing with their disability insurer. Maybe it's uh, an adjuster. Maybe they've been told they're, uh, they're going to be dropped. Maybe they Never got taken up in the first place by the insurance company and they have problems with it. Give us a call, 416-872-1010 is how you do that. 416-872-1010. Emails, questions all coming down the pike here, guys. But James, I know you like to kick things off with a uh, a week that was or a case of the day, pal. What are you working on? Well, first, I just want to throw something out there. So mm-hmm. it has been suggested to me from oh. time to time that perhaps I tend to talk a little more than I need to. (laughs) Not necessarily on the radio, but that too. So I'm throwing that out there for our listeners who, if you would like to hear me talk a little less, that can be easily accomplished by (laughs) calling in and you talking. I'll have to answer, but perhaps tomorrow will. But I'm just saying there are solutions out there. So if you are listening at home in the car, what have you, and you have a question, please, please call in. We'd love to hear from you. So week that was. One of the common themes from people that contact us is the idea that how can they challenge the insurance company, even if they're bringing a lawsuit? This is you know a big insurance company with you know millions of dollars in revenue, billions of dollars in assets, all the resources in the world. How are you supposed to take on that kind of an entity? Well, I know it can seem that way, but the reality is that the cards are not stacked in favor of the insurer to the extent that you think. It appears that way both because of their resources and for a lot of people, because of the way they're, they're treated by the insurance company while they are applying or even while their benefits are approved. A lot of people are not treated particularly well, even while they are receiving monthly benefits. And a lot of times people feel that they're being harassed or bullied and they just don't want to have to get into a fight with the insurer because they believe if they go down that road, it's going to be a big struggle. And at the end of the day, what's really in it for them? Why would the insurer ever come to the table? Well, there are a lot of reasons for that. There are a lot of reasons why the insurer comes to the table. But at the end of the day, the biggest reason when you bring a lawsuit is because the insurance company knows that they no longer control the outcome. They're no longer in charge of what happens. Until you bring a lawsuit, they can do whatever they want. And no one's really looking over their shoulder. But when you bring a lawsuit, they know if they are no longer reasonable, if they continue to be unreasonable, then they're going to have to wind up in front of a judge. And that can be really, really bad. Even in a case where the insurer has only made a wrong decision, that's still going to be embarrassing for them if they come in front of a judge and the judge says, no, you should have been paying this person benefits. They're treating doctors said that you're disabled. But more often than not, when these LTD cases come in front of a judge, it isn't simply a case that the insurance company has just made an innocent mistake. Far more often than not, what we see is that there are significant deficiencies in the process that the insurer has gone through. 
And what we see is, although punitive damages is often thought of as being an exceptional award, mm-hmm. in other words, a punishment against the insurance company, if you take a look at the long-term disability cases that actually go to trial, and there aren't many of them, there's only a handful every year across the country, but the vast majority of those cases that go to trial, there are punitive damages awarded against the insurance company. We talked about one a few months ago. Now, this was a jury case. It wasn't decided by judge. It was decided by a jury. But the jury awarded $1.5 million against Blue Cross. Now, we don't have reason because it was a jury. So we don't know exactly how they got to their conclusion. And I'm not going to speculate. But that is obviously one factor that insurance companies have to recognize as a risk for them if they go to trial, that they can be hit with a very large punitive damages award. But there's another factor in there as well. It's called legal costs. So in Ontario, if you bring a lawsuit and you're successful, the unsuccessful party, in this case, the insurance company, is going to have to pay legal costs. And usually, in most civil cases, legal costs are really a fraction of what the lawyer is charging. And so very often it's going to be, you know, maybe 25 or 30% of what you might actually have to pay your lawyer. In some cases that gets increased, but it's virtually never going to be on what we call full indemnity, meaning covering the actual full amount of the lawyer's fees. And if a case goes to trial, those fees can actually be quite expensive. And so what just happened in that case that Blue Cross case where the jury had awarded $1.5 million in punitive damages. This was a particularly long trial, especially for long-term disability. And so the fees for that case were incredibly high. And the judge decided in this case that because it's long-term disability and that arises out of a contract, that the applicant or the plaintiff in the lawsuit shouldn't be out of pocket for legal fees. Hmm. and is therefore entitled to full indemnity costs. And the amount of legal fees that Blue Cross has, it was just ordered to pay, I think it just came out last week, was $850,000. Plus tax, plus disbursements. So all in all, the cost wound up being over a million dollars, plus $1.5 million in punitive damages, and plus whatever benefits the, the plaintiff was entitled to. The benefits, I think, were probably a few hundred thousand dollars. If Blue Cross had just paid that, they would have saved themselves two and a half million bucks. Oh, boy. And you better, I've talked to a few defense lawyers this week, and you better believe I'm raising this case with them. I'm making sure that they all know about it. And every time I talk to one, the response is the same. Yeah, we know. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, cases like this get around very quickly. And the point of all of this is that if you are out there and you are worried about bringing a lawsuit against insurance companies because you don't think they have anything to lose, think again. They have plenty to lose. And it is the experience of everyone at my firm that when you have a legitimate case and you bring a lawsuit against the insurance company to recover your disability benefits, they are eager to come to the table and they want to resolve the case. It is not a long and hard road in the vast majority of cases. Tamara? It's uh, a watershed decision, I guess, is is the way that I would describe it in the sense that, you know, it's showing a trend, right, James? I mean, we've seen a couple of these cases come out of BC and very rarely do we see cases coming out of Ontario, but the ones that do 
have gone in the favor of the claimant. Very rarely do we see decisions going the other way. And why this one is so significant is because of the factors that you've already described. It was a jury award, we have a reported decision, and we have massive, massive penalties being awarded and found against the insurance company. So even though it's just this one insurer in respect of this one case, to James's point, these kinds of decisions do get around very quick, and it is absolutely helpful leverage for lawyers like us to advocate on behalf of our clients when there's even a hint or a suggestion that there's going to be a bad faith award made by a court if the insurance company doesn't do right by our clients. So I like the decision for a lot of reasons, but I also don't want our clients to feel as though this is what's going to happen in every instance. The biggest caveat really is that that million dollar mark, we very rarely see in disability litigation. It's helpful. It's great. But I just don't want our listeners to think that this is something that's going to happen in every instance. What will happen, though, in every instance, I think, or at least in the vast majority of our claims, is that it's going to motivate the disability insurer to come to the table, come to the table reasonably with some fair compensation to resolve the case far before it gets to the stage of a trial. And that is super helpful for our clients because they don't have to wait years and years. They don't have to take the risk of what may happen at a trial, and they will get a fair shake, ideally with our representation and our hope, to get the proper outcome quickly and not go down this protracted road. But even so, this is why it's such a good and helpful decision is that it's a massive deterrent. Yeah, I don't really foresee this changing the number of cases that reach trial. I, I, I think that as lawyers representing claimants, plaintiffs, uh, who have been denied by insurers, I think we all understand that the risks are now very clearly more significant as against the insurer than it is against our clients, and that provides leverage for us. And the insurer is aware of that too, and I think you're quite right. I think that's going to make the insurers that much more eager to try and get it resolved. If anything, this decision may make it just that much easier to get a resolution early on than it is now. And it wasn't that difficult to begin with. In the vast majority of cases, it is the experience of almost every lawyer I know practicing in this area that insurers want to get these cases resolved once you put it into litigation. Good opening uh, salvo there, guys. Let's take a short break. Give you some time if you're listening to grab a phone. We had a phone call, but it dropped out. If they want to call back, they can do so. If not, bring on your phone calls with those questions. Uh, you got to a little less than an hour, so lots of time. Pick it up, 416-872-1010. Failing that, we'll get into some email. That is help at disabilityrights.ca. As we continue right here, Disability Law Show, stand by. And welcome back to it. It is 119 here on your Saturday afternoon. Good to have you along. James Fireman, Tamara Gopian, both here to answer your questions. Just grab that phone. You got lots of time. 416-872-1010. We'll uh, dive into some email here shortly, guys. Uh, question, though, that came through. If LTD benefits are still being paid, still being paid, what advice do you give on how to deal with the insurance adjuster? Is it the same advice for dealing with the employer as well? What do you guys think? Anytime I hear an employer, I tend to jump in a little bit just uh, because yeah, you know, I, of the two of us, I tend to do a little bit more employment than James does, uh, who does not at all, actually. Um, so this is entirely a, true. That's yeah. a dabble. You're right, James. You're I right. dabble. Um, so I, I think that the overwhelming advice is that you really don't need to initiate contact, right? Regardless of whether it's the disability insurer or it's the employer, 
you know, they'll come to you if they need things. Um, you don't necessarily need to initiate those kinds of discussions per se. Uh, I think with the disability insurer or the adjuster, you do want to be responsive to their inquiries, right? And and while you're on claim, it's important to know and understand that the onus rests with the claimant to demonstrate ongoing total disability. This is why the adjusters call them. This is why the adjusters request mm-hmm. medical updates. It really is the starting point of making further assessments for the adjuster on whether or not they're going to continue to release that monthly benefit. And it is a month-to-month assessment, even though sometimes you get approved for a number of months, maybe you don't hear from the adjuster for a few months. But at the end of the day, you want to make sure that you're responsive to those kinds of requests because they will always dangle that carrot of you know bringing your LTD benefits to an end if you're not being compliant with the things that they've asked you to do. The overwhelming advice there, though, be reasonable. It's reasonableness. They're not to harass you. They're not to do things that will harm your health. Um, if they're bordering on something that's not appropriate, it's okay to, first of all, document it, put things in writing, maybe ask to speak to a manager. All of that is absolutely fair. As it relates to the employer, look, the adjuster should be updating the employer, generally speaking, on what's happening with your disability claim, especially if you're on the cusp of returning back to work and you've been receiving disability benefits there typically will be some coordination between the adjuster and the employer to make sure they put the right plan in place. Is it a graduated return? When is that going to start? How does that look like? But if you're just receiving your monthly benefit, a return to work is not on the horizon. The employer really only needs periodic updates. And just to be sure that you're still on disability and you haven't abandoned your job and perhaps there is some reasonable expectation to return. Your employer, employer, though, is not entitled to know all of the details of your medical history as to why you're off, details around the things that you would typically provide to the adjuster. All the employer needs to know is, what's your prognosis? Are you likely to get back in a certain period of time? And if so, are there restrictions and limitations that need to be put in place so that there's a conversation around accommodation at that point? But beyond that, you know, there's not much that you need to do as it relates to your employer if you're being approved for LTD benefits. I think where people get into a little bit of trouble is wanting the need to want to update the employer. And I just, I always say to claimants, you know, why? Your benefits are being approved. You know, unless there's something specific that your employer requires, I don't think you should feel that need. In fact, that's why you're on claim and receiving disability benefits is so that you can take a step back from employment, employment issues, and really just focus on your health and your recovery. Anything to add to that, James? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't want to dig too deep into the employment side for reasons we've already touched on, but certainly the phrase don't poke the bear has escaped my lips many times when speaking to clients about how to deal with their employer. You you don't want to raise issues and have your employer go from taking a backseat, really not uh, pushing things to asking questions and looking at making decisions regarding your employment status, it opens up this can of worms that is much better left closed, at least until you've dealt with the disability claim. So I certainly agree with that. And I agree with what you said before, as it relates to the insurer while you're getting benefits. In particular, as as you described about documenting your conversations, I think this is really critical, even if things are going smoothly. I think it is a very good idea to establish a habit of making sure that every conversation that you have is documented in writing. Ideally, 
it would be best if you could communicate entirely by email, but insurers generally won't simply agree to that. They tend to push back. It's okay to ask for it, and maybe they will. If they don't, no problem. When they call, I would implore you to ask them to hold on for a moment, get to your computer and take notes, or get a piece of paper and a pen and write down notes about what's being said. The idea here isn't to try and pull something over on them or try and slip something you know, into the conversation. Not at all. All you're trying to do is accurately document what is being said during this conversation. And then after the conversation's over, send an email to your adjuster with that summary, just a factual summary of what was discussed and in particular, what information you gave to them if they ask you questions so that there can be no dispute down the road. You wanna make sure that that is done very shortly afterwards. And if your insurer or if the claims handler at least does not respond, does not correct what you've written there in any way, then they will have been deemed to have accepted. Because if six months down the road or two years down the road, they cut you off and you bring a claim and they say, oh, well, no, you never said that. That's not mm -hmm. what I have in my notes. Well, if you sent the email right afterwards and they received it and didn't correct you, no one's going to buy that they dispute now two years later what you said when that initial call happened. So make a habit out of doing that and you can avoid a lot of problems down the road. And it's also a good idea that your claims handler knows that they're not going to be able to pull something over on you and they better make sure that if they're even thinking about cutting you off that they have a legitimate reason. Like it down to, uh, yeah, sorry, go ahead, Tamar. You know, yeah. you know what I was going to add, John, because I was thinking mm -hmm. about this a little more as I was reviewing a claims file this morning, was that one insurer has actually started to record the calls and actually create a transcription. James, I don't know if you've seen this and you can think of the insurer that I'm thinking of, but I think it is important for people to be mindful of the fact that with the advent of technology, that this is something that insurers, I think, will more readily start to do. And so I'm certainly not suggesting that you're not forthright and having an open conversation with your adjuster about your ongoing health issues, but you should also assume that they may record it, but they may not be recording it necessarily in a fulsome way. In other words, you can't just rely upon it down the road that they've made the recording and that they've made it accurately or that they've preserved it. Other than this one insurer who seems to be doing some transcriptions of these calls, the vast majority of them are not recording it in this way. And so I think it becomes that much more important, actually, for a claimant to make sure that they are documenting those kinds of important discussions and touch points that they are having with the insurance company. Got time to get into Peter's email, guys. Let's get into this. It says, uh, guys, my son was recently denied LTD benefits because the insurance company said his back issues were work-related and pre-existing. He was working as a service mechanic at a body shop and has had bad back uh, from a prior work injury. His doctor thinks he may never return to a physical job, so my son is thinking of getting retrained for a different line of work. Does the insurance company still owe him benefits? The decline did not make sense to me, so I thought I'd check with you guys, disability lawyers first. What do you think? I think we got two and a half minutes. I'm going to try and answer this within that time. So uh, pre-existing, let's talk about that first. If you have a disability policy and you, from a, let's say it's a group disability policy, you've just started a new job. If you have a new 
claim within the first year of starting that job of getting your insurance, getting insurance coverage, and you are disabled within the first year, that is almost always going to trigger that pre-existing exclusion. And what that means is if your disability within that first year is directly or indirectly related to a disability or injury that you had before, then it may be excluded. Now, you have to look at the wording of these pre-existing clauses closely because the timelines can change. And sometimes it's whether you had it at any point in the past. Sometimes it's only whether it was pre-existing or treated within three months before. Sometimes it says directly or indirectly related. Sometimes it does not use that language. And all of those variables can change whether or not it applies. So you really need to look at the policy to see whether it applies. But if he, let's say he had a pre-existing injury and he was treated for it within three months prior to starting his new job and he uh, got disabled within the first year, then that would be a legitimate pre-existing exclusion and the insurer would be right to deny. As it relates to work-related, typically that will be something that would engage WSIB, which would be available if you have an injury caused by something that happened at work. It is more difficult in my experience, it's more difficult for claimants to succeed it through a WSIB claim if it's the result of gradual wear and tear, even if it's probably through work, than it would be if it were the result of a specific traumatic injury. If you had an accident at work, for example, then you'd be much more likely to succeed. But you don't have to choose. You can apply for both. If you're approved for WSIB, it would simply just offset all of your disability income anyway. And if you're not approved for WSIV, then you would get the LPD. But in this case, Peterson likely would be excluded because of the pre-existing injury. Mark, going to give you a kick at this one when we come back, if you'd like. In the meantime, Sounds go have a short break and give you guys a chance to send an email along to the show or call 416-872-1010 or help at disabilityrights.ca. We'll continue more of the Disability Law Show. Stay tuned. We are back. So good to have you here with us. And uh, you want to reach out. So got lots of time to make that phone call. Don't be bashful. Come talk to us. 416-872-1010. If you prefer the email away, you could do that. Help at disabilityrights.ca. There is also the website called mydisabilityquestions.com. That's cool because it's uh, it's free, of course. You can type your questions into your smartphone, your tablet, your desktop. Search to see if your question has been asked previously or leave it there. And we'll, uh, we'll try to get to those as well because we read those out on air. During this hour, guys, if an employee sustains an injury at work and then can't work, are they entitled to short-term or long-term disability benefits? A common question we get. What do you think, Tamar? The short answer is yes, uh, they are entitled to it. And it's mm-hmm. really actually reminiscent to the email we were dealing with with Peter and his son just uh, before our break. So, you know, I think what the confusion is, John, is that people just assume that the disability insurer is not the target of this kind of a claim, right? So it stands to reason if you're injured at work, you think, okay, well, that's got to be either my employer's problem or a worker's compensation issue. And maybe it is. Maybe it's a yes to both of those issues and avenues to pursue for compensation. But you really cannot forget that if you do have disability benefits through your employer as a group plan, Maybe you've even got an individual policy, for example. Let's say you're an independent contractor for your employer and you've got your own private disability plan. Either way, just because your disability stems from your work setting doesn't mean that disentitles you automatically to either short-term or long-term. We see this actually play out quite a bit when you've got a work setting that has contributed 
to a mental health condition, for example. So you've got a difficult work situation, uh, perhaps that's led to either a mental breakdown or development of either depression or anxiety or some other health issues. I've seen a variety of things. But mental health in particular tends to be very resisted by these disability insurers when it stems from the work setting. And I think that's because they don't really want to get involved in a poor work situation. And they're really trying to weed out you know, what's a legitimate quote-unquote disability claim versus one that's really just a poor work setting. And so we oftentimes see a decline that says, you know, we think this is all work-related. We think that you could do your own occupation just in a different work setting and that if that were the case, you wouldn't be disabled and your health wouldn't prevent you from working. But you can see even in the way that I've described it that there are flaws in that reasoning and that's not always the case. In fact, in many instances, it's not the case at all because the individual is still likely experiencing symptoms that are persisting, despite the fact that they are outside of their work setting. So when people come to James and I and our team to talk to us about disability claims that have been denied because they are born in the work setting, well, we say to them, look, I mean, generally speaking, we say to them that they've got a legitimate disability claim if their doctors are saying they cannot work, regardless of the work setting. In other words, if it's not a situational condition, like anxiety, for example, that can be generalized, then it absolutely is a valid disability claim and should be approved for the insurer, whether for short-term or long-term. James, what do you think? Well, I agree with everything you're saying. And there's another practical uh, wrinkle that I'd like to throw in here. So let's use a different scenario. Let's say it is a very clear injury at work. Let's say you uh, are like Peter's son. Let's say he was working as a mechanic in a body shop and had an injury at work, a physical injury that prevents him from working. Very clearly, that is something that should be a WSIB claim. And so let's say he applies and is very quickly approved, as may well be the case. And he's thinking, well, you know, I have this LTD insurance, but why should I bother applying? I'm getting the WSIB the WSIB is more than what my LTD benefit would be. And so I wouldn't actually get anything from LTD anyway. All of that's true. But if you have the LTD benefits, you should still make the application. It is not because you are looking to try and double recover. And you certainly won't be able to do that. You won't be able to get your LTD benefits on top of WSIB, presuming the WSIB benefit is greater than the LTD benefit. But the reason you want to do that, even if you're actually getting paid zero dollars, it is still a big deal if you are considered disabled by your insurer. And the reason is simple. If your WSIB cuts you off at some point down the road, as they may well do, but you are still disabled from returning to your own job, as is the test for LTD, then you would be entitled to start getting your LTD benefits when your WSIB cuts you off. But if you wait a year and a half or two years while you're getting the WSIP benefit because you figure, what's the point? I'm not going to get any extra money. Your LTD insurer is going to say you've applied too late. Sometimes you can get relief from forfeiture if you apply later than you're supposed to, which is can be a way around a late application, but you can't rely on that either. And you may well not be able to actually make the application at that point. The insurer will almost certainly resist it. And if you brought a lawsuit, there's no guarantee that a judge would say, yeah, they still have to take your application and adjudicate your claim. So I would strongly recommend if you are, even if you're on WSIB, even if your WSIB claim is approved, 
If you have LTD insurance, I would strongly urge you to still make the application and still try to get a formal approval, even if they don't pay any money. Yeah, yeah. just ready to bust in. I got to, I'm just reading Shelly's email, just sent it along, guys. Uh, again, if you want to send one along to the show anytime, help at disabilityrights.ca. It says, guys, I helped my sister submit an LTD application. It took time to get her doctor to send the medical records uh, the insurance company wanted. The insurance company went ahead and denied my sister's claim anyway, even after we told the adjuster that the doctor was sending more records. The denial letter even said that there was insufficient medical information to support my sister's claim. This doesn't seem right. My sister just got another letter saying they are reviewing her appeal information. Does this mean the insurance company may approve my sister's disability claim after all? In theory, <laughs> I mean, I, you know, they, they could. Um, you know, I, I don't really know what was produced the first time Shelby's sister provided information versus the latter. Ideally, the insurer wouldn't make any initial decision until they have all of the information. Now, it's possible the initial information was very sparse and didn't really contain the information needed to make an approval. And now in the second uh, bulk of information provided, maybe that information is there and maybe the insurer approves. That's a pretty optimistic view. More realistically, what typically happens is the first uh, the first batch of information typically contains the bulk of what the insurer would need. And they've made a decision saying it doesn't support a disability based on what we have. And unless the second group of information or batch of information contains something that significantly changes the information that the insurance company has, they're not likely to change their, their view. They're not likely to change their decision. And the reason is simple. They don't have any incentive to change their decision. They don't want to pay benefits. They make money by paying less benefits, by taking in premiums, paying out less benefits. So once they have found a way to make an initial denial or to terminate your benefits at some point down the road, getting them to change their mind is not so easy. Not impossible, and it is you know, certainly within the realm of possibility, again, that Shelley's sister's initial application really didn't contain enough information. So I don't know the answer in this specific case. It could really be either, but experience tells me that when an insurance company finds any justification to not pay benefits, changing their mind is usually a very, very difficult proposition until you bring a lawsuit. And then, and this goes back to the discussion we had right at the top of the show, once you bring a lawsuit, the incentives change significantly. Even before the recent case that I talked about at the top of the show, insurers had a lot of incentive to come to the table once they know that if they're not reasonable, it winds up in front of a judge. Now, insurers are well aware that if they aren't reasonable, not only does it wind up in front of a judge, but the punitive damages could be exorbitant and they could be required to pay legal costs that may be significantly greater than the benefits that they're not paying in the first place. So there are a lot of reasons for an insurer to come to the table uh, once you bring a lawsuit. I'm not holding my breath for Shelly's sister, but let's be, let's be at least a little bit optimistic and wait and see. But Shelly, certainly if your sister is denied, have her give us a call and we can certainly talk her through the next steps. 
Shelly, appreciate you reaching out. Good times. Thanks for the email. Here's that number James has mentioned to call 1-855-821-5900. Again, 1-855-821-5900. Corey, your email is up next. We'll throw this one towards uh, tomorrow when we come back from a short break. And that address anytime, not just during the hour, help at disabilityrights.ca. We'll continue. This is the Disability Law Show. Hang on. Welcome back and uh, good to have you along on the show. Email address anytime this hour and outside help at disabilityrights.ca. You can always call James and Tamar. Have a chat on your own time, right? 1-855-821-5900. Here and now, though, 416-872-1010 or texting is simply 71010 as well. Guys, want to get to this uh, this text first one of the day. says, I exhausted my accident benefits, so I'm being evaluated for catastrophic status to see if the insurer will continue paying my treatment would my LTD insurance expect that I pay for rehab to continue receiving LTD, or can I stop rehab until the catastrophic assessment is completed uh, if I am not deemed catastrophic? Do I have to continue paying for rehab to keep my LTD? What do you guys think? Good question. Really good question, because it highlights one of the areas that we practice in as well, which is motor vehicle litigation. And it highlights the interplay between motor vehicle litigation and what happens with disability. So, to the point of this text message, which is, do I have to keep going to rehab or pay for rehabilitation in order to ensure that my LTD benefits will continue? And I think the short answer to that is maybe. So all disability policies have a section that says you must be getting appropriate treatment or taking positive steps to improve in order to continue receiving LTD benefits. It is not necessarily hard and fast that it has to be rehab. And, I, and I'm not sure what type of treatment this individual has is getting or what type of treatment expectations there are to get to that point of recovery. But I can assure him or her, they, that the disability insurer will be very focused on ensuring that treatment is in line with those recovery expectations because they are looking for an opportunity to close out your claim. So if you're not getting appropriate treatment as they deem it to be so, they will cut off the claim. If they don't think they're, you're taking positive steps to recover, they will cut off the claim. <laughs> if they don't think you're making sufficient recovery, they will oh. cut off the claim. So we see a theme here. So what ends up happening, I think, with claims that are, you know, that have an underlying motor vehicle accident. In other words, it sounds like this individual had a motor vehicle claim and he or she or they is getting you know, treatment through the motor vehicle regime, which is absolutely fine. In my experience, the disability insurer will then sort of take a secondary position and wait to see how that plays itself out because the motor vehicle regime in Ontario actually has a fairly robust uh, compensation scheme and opportunities for individuals to get rehabilitation that's paid for through what's called accident benefits. And that is the no-fault benefits that are available in Ontario when you're involved in a motor vehicle accident and treatment and rehabilitation aspects and compensation is part of that regime. So I think if this individual is waiting for some kind of a catastrophic impairment dis, you know, determination, which will mean, by the way, that they then get to access more compensation through the Ontario regime, it doesn't necessarily mean it will have an immediate impact to the ongoing entitlement to long-term, but eventually it may. So if you're looking at your various claims and thinking, okay, how do I ensure that I get appropriate compensation in all of these areas, which this individual is absolutely entitled to, then you want to make sure that you're meeting the requirements of all of these treatment measures as well. So ongoing treatment means you get LTD, 
catastrophic impairment determination may or may not mean that you get accident benefits. Either way, we work in those fields absolutely for this exact reason, because there can be interplay between one and the other, especially for the disability insurer who typically will take that that backseat position to the motor vehicle insurer and what they're doing with their benefits. James, what do you think? Well, I, I think part of the issue here is also whether or not uh, it can be afforded, whether treatment is affordable for, right. uh, for the claimant. And so if there is some you know, potential treatment, but the person's going to have to pay $500,000 out of pocket, clearly that's not something that most people are going to be able to afford. And unless you're independently wealthy and the insurer can prove that, there's no way the insurer can say that you're unreasonably not getting treatment. Now, what's happening in this case, I'm going to make a few assumptions here, because if the accident benefits treatment is paused right because they're awaiting the outcome of the catastrophic assessment, that means that this person would have exhausted the non-catastrophic limits. So in Ontario, if you are injured in a motor vehicle accident and you apply for accident benefits, you're entitled, if you have a non-catastrophic claim, and it's not a minor injury, you're entitled to up to $65,000 of medical and rehabilitation benefits. And I'm also going to assume that this isn't a very recent motor vehicle accident because $65,000 takes quite a while to go through. But if you go through it really quickly, it suggests it almost certainly is a catastrophic impairment and the insurer would continue to pay. So my guess is this has probably been a claim that has been ongoing for at least a year or two, maybe longer, and that this this person would already be in the any occupation phase of the LTD claim. And so in all likelihood, this is already a pretty strong LTD case. And if treatment is only affordable, if it's being paid for by the accident benefits carrier, and it's no longer being paid while they're waiting for the catastrophic assessment, then it seems reasonable to wait to get further treatment until you're able to pay for it. And if that is explained properly to the insurer, they ought to at least put a pause, especially if there is a date where the catastrophic assessment uh, is going to be made. In other words, if it's you know two years down the road and nobody knows when it's going to happen, then the LTD insurer is not going to be waiting that long. And if they believe that you can pay for it and you're choosing not to, then they'll cut you off. Or if they believe that you can't, then they're just going to continue paying. So there's a lot that has to go into the analysis in order to figure out whether or not this is something where the insurer would be justified in terminating the benefits. But as we know, and as anyone who listens to this show knows, the LTD insurers really don't need an awful lot for them to self-justify cutting off your, your claim. And so even if there is a very legitimate reason, that being that you can't afford the treatment, it doesn't necessarily mean the insurer is going to play ball and and do what they're supposed to do. If they cut you off because you can't afford the treatment, then by all means, give us a call. That's what we do. And if necessary, we can start a legal claim and bring your insurer back to the table and make sure that you're getting those LTD benefits that you're entitled to, you know, the premiums you've been paying for, the benefits you're entitled to receive. There's no reason to just accept that kind of decision from the insurer. 
Mark, let me get this we email in quick. Got about a minute and a half, but I know you can do it. Corey's I'm an LTD, also a CPP disability. Employer wants my doctor to answer questions to see if I'm fit to perform my regular duties or their limitations I require if I go back. They also want to know my future prognosis on returning to work with or without limitations. They also want consent of release of medical information form. I was under the impression that my LTD insurer was handling the return to work, and I feel uncomfortable releasing my medical information to my employer. Can I tell my employer to deal with the LTD insurer instead? That's a really good question, Corey. And so if you're getting long-term disability benefits and CPP disability benefits, which Mm -hmm. means you've got a severe and prolonged disability as recognized by the government, I got to wonder why your employer is looking for all this information. If there is no likelihood for a return to work, at least in the short term, then I would absolutely resist your employer's inquiries around all of this information. This information only makes sense if there's a likelihood for a return. And, you know, as I said, sort of throughout the show, if there's an accommodation that needs to be put in place or there are ongoing restrictions and limitations that the employer needs to be made aware of, I wouldn't be unresponsive. I wouldn't necessarily say to your employer, hey, you know what, go talk to my adjuster about this. But I think it would be also reasonable to say to your employer, look, right now, medically speaking, my doctors have not given me the green light to return or even to make an attempt to return. I will be reassessed in say three or six months down the road and you can keep that door open. What I also don't want to see happen is the employer gets all excited about the fact that you may <laughs> never return, in which case they might then trigger the end of the employment, um, you know, maybe improperly, and then bring your extended health benefits to an end. So either of those scenarios are never good. You want to provide information and be cooperative, but only if it makes sense to your current circumstances. And that is it. And we are done. Here's how you reach out now that we are. one 821 5900 For James and Tamar, emails help at disabilityrights.ca. We'll catch you next time on the Disability Law Show.